Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with Brian Kaplan. Brian, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Great. And I think most of our listeners are probably uh, know who you are, but for, for those who may not or who may not be familiar with all your work, can you give a little bit of an introduction? Right. Well, so I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University, and I'm the author of the Myth of the Rational Voters, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education and Open Borders. And the last book is a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I've read, I read uh, The Myth of the Rational Voter. Um, I read the uh, Open Borders book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they were both, they were both interesting. And I, I got a lot out of them. I read the, uh, I started to read The Case Against Education. Huh? And I think I read about, you know, a third to a half of it. And I was just like, I, I agree with this too much. So uh, yeah. there's, there's nothing, there's nothing surprising here. So I, I, I you know, I, I you know, it's, I was it like, goes against uh, what almost all experts in education economics actually <laughs> say. So yeah. yes, I, I, I do get that a lot. I'm like, isn't this obvious? They're like, well, it's not obvious to the people who devote their lives to the topic. Uh, so there is yeah. that problem. Or, or the general public or every country in the world that has a lot of compulsory <laughs> schooling and, uh, and um, you know, has uh, gives advantages to people with college degrees. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, it, you have to remember what's obvious for me or you is not obvious for everybody. Uh, and then the uh, selfish reasons to have more yes. kids. I actually, um, I, I, I know quite a bit about the behavioral genetics literature. Mm-hmm. So I've read uh, both Judith Rich Harris's books and uh, uh, Steve, uh, you know, Steven Pinker, The Blank Slate. And I've looked a little more deeply into it because I just find these questions to be so fascinating. So I've read a lot of the underlying research. Uh, so I just I, I just never picked it up because I thought, you know, I'm, this is just going to be like case against education where I agree with everything. And I've also thought about the uh, implications of um, the behavioral genetics research, mm-hmm. uh, which I've always thought that people don't take seriously enough. So what I was thinking about when I was thinking about all your books um, is... I was trying to find a common theme and I think it's something along the lines of, and you tell me if this is right. I don't think you're dealing, you're answering questions that are hard. Like you're not, I don't think any book is like a question where you look at and you say, Oh, it's like sort of like 55 this way and 45, 45%, mm-hmm. you know, the opposite case. I think you're picking things where you think there's an overwhelming case for something mm-hmm. and people are just not taking seriously enough and they really need to beat it into their heads and that there are all kinds of moral and economic and political implications of these big ideas. Is, is that how you sort yeah, of- Yeah, that's, that, that's very fair. So the way that I often describe it is I only write books about orphaned ideas, ideas that are just living on the street, no one loves them. And then I come along and say, I'm going to adopt you and I'm going to raise you strong and you will be my child. And that's what I'm going for. So say like you know this is a very worthy idea that has just been abandoned by and, and receives very little attention and just convince people look not only should it not have been abandoned it's the right version of it actually so yeah I mean like I think I'll, I'll, I'll never write a book on any of my normal views because that book's already been written a hundred times you don't need me to write the book on the sky is blue uh, so I do always target ideas where I expect them to be controversial again on the education one that's probably the least controversial in that. I can give an hour-long talk on that book, and for the first 45 minutes, I can get a totally normal audience to nod in agreement. And it's only after 45 minutes, when I get to minute 46, and I say, and that's why we should have less education, that people freak out. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing, because your theory, I mean, your theory is this is a negative sum game. Yeah. We're all jumping through hoops. 
and we're wasting time. And then your implication is let's just stop jumping through the, the hoops. Yeah. And then stop, subsidize, stop subsidizing hoop jumping. <laughs> subsidizing yeah. the hoop stop jumping. having big government hoop jumping programs. Right. Um, and again, that's where suddenly people have been saying, yeah, it was such a waste of time. I can't believe how little I learned. And then it's like, what's less of it? No, we can't have less of it. Uh, so that's uh, what's striking to me is that immediately, like, I mean, so much of that book just fits with people's firsthand experience that it's you know, like, there's only one or two people I've ever met who've actually said that you know, your case against education does not match my experience. It's always along the lines of, well, yeah, that seems to be everything that we've ever seen, but appearances can, are, are, are deceiving and here's why. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's funny because I mean, the, you know, you teach these pe- people things and then they don't even remember it when, and when they're adults. So, oh, yeah. you know, and then you, then you say, well, you teach them how to think and then there's no evidence of that either. Yeah. And so the question well, is, I mean, I, I say that there's there, you know, the, the evidence for the, for people being taught how to think is that some people know how to think. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, you say, look, well, someone learned how to think at some point because some people do it. But what the actual experimental research is, is they can't find it in the lab. So I think I would just say it's just so rare that it's not experimentally detectable, although it obviously do, does, you know, does get created somehow. But it's not a good rationale for what exists because what exists is so bad at getting people to, to learn how to think. Do you think there's a d- diminishing uh, returns to education in the sense that it might have been really helpful, you know, 50, 100 years ago to increase the amount of education in the country? And maybe this is what the Flynn effect is reflecting, maybe not just nutrition, but some basic schooling. But we've gone way, way, way beyond what is optimal. Do you think that's right? Maybe. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give that a maybe. It's Complicated. You can see, you know, again, like in macroeconomics, there is a lot of work on the question: what is the return for society from primary education, secondary, tertiary? And I would say probably the modal view is that primary is more important. But then there's other people saying no, and we don't really see it in the data. So that's one where I say, in terms of measuring the economic payoff, it's plausible that it's more important to do the primary. The main reason for doubt actually is just to go and look at primary education and realize that our stereotype of what is happening at K through six is not most of what happens at K through six. We picture K through six as just teaching literacy and numeracy. Yet if you actually go there, you'll see that most of the day they're spending on other stuff. And then it's like, well, hmm, that's odd. So like what kind of other stuff? You know, like music, art gets absorbed as a very large share of the day actually. Right. And then realize, hmm, so if literacy and numeracy are very important and they're not doing nearly as much of it in K through six, maybe a lot of it's happening later. I mean, you know, it's a common complaint about modern college students that they arrive at college illiterate and innumerate, and then you sort of have to give them remedial education. Right. And so once you start thinking that way, it's like, well, maybe there, it's, it's not actually such an issue of diminishing returns. And really, there's constant low returns. A lot of it driven by most of the day being completely wasted on material that people are not likely to use or remember or even learn in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I, I think about my own experience. So when I went to um, gram- when I went to grammar school, primary school, I went in with a very bad sort of speech impediment, oh, and right. I used to uh, pronounce uh, uh, words and phonemes in a very strange way. So like the sh sounds sh. I used to do this weird thing, which I don't know if any other human has ever done, but I go. <laughs> 
I used to do like that. I used to <laughs> pronounce it from the sides of my teeth. Yeah, so sorry, don't mean don't mean to laugh at what might be a very traumatic childhood memory. Uh, well, I didn't know. I didn't really know I was doing anything wrong, and the, and every every sound was sort of that ridiculous. I had found some weird way that no one else had pronounced the sound, and we had a speech pathologist who would like take students out and then like uh, look at them and talk to them. And one of them was like, "Okay, you know, you're going to start coming for lessons, you know, once a week." And, you know, I didn't have any kind of, um, you know, it wasn't any kind of problem that couldn't be solved. As soon as she explained to me what exactly I needed to do with my mouth, I mm-hmm. figured it out and I was able to do it. And that was, that was huge. If I had never gone to public school, maybe, maybe, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I would have, I would still be sounding, you know, a little bit weird and people would think there was something off about me. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I, I always thought that was huge. And then, but, you know, the, the, my pronunciation <laughs> didn't really need the other, you know, the other uh, 20 years of education that I've had. So, so I, the, 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 uh, uh, the diminishing return story, you know, is very plausible to me. And then you get, you know, things like algebra, things like reading. And then, you know, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's so common also for defenders to ask, quote, to find one very useful thing and then say, and that's why we should fund education even more. And it's like, well, that might be a case for funding the exact thing you just told me about more, and we could probably fund it very, very comfortably, handsomely, by cutting out all the things I'm complaining about. And that's again where, like, no, no, we can't possibly think about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do you think? I mean, you're a big, you know, fan of markets and accountability. How much of this problem is due to school just being basically a government monopoly, with with certain exceptions for you know most of the last you know century and a half or whatever? Right. So ideologically, I'm really tempted to say that, but I don't think that really fits the facts. So if you look at private school curricula, they're extremely similar to public school curricula. So I don't think that there actually is much going on, much going on there. There are very important differences between private and public schools, and those have come out very strongly this year when private schools stayed open in person and provided the service people want to pay for, yeah. and public schools shut down and just took tax money to do to not do their job. So there are important differences between private and public education, and this is the year private education really showed its stuff. But in terms of the curriculum, I don't actually see very much difference between what they do. Uh, so I don't think that's so plausible. Again, I mean, again, I think the the real story is that both public and private schools, people are primarily value them for the signal, for getting the credential, to get the stamp on your forehead. And private schools do try to compete with public schools by offering a better stamp by saying, hey, we get, we're gonna give you a better credential, more prestigious credential. But I don't see that they put more time into hard subjects, subjects where you're actually building job skills. And again, you know, for the point of view of parents, I can easily see them saying, well, so the main thing that we're looking for is the signal anyway. So like if you get the signal by doing a bunch of stuff that you don't need to know later in life, well, why should I worry about it? I um, mean, again, I think that's probably a bit too sophisticated. I think most parents are just saying, well, this works. I don't know why, I don't need to know why. Um, and then there's you know, a, lot, a lot of conformism, but you know, like, like, I mean, main thing I notice, you know, like when I would go, when I, whenever I go to back to school night and the teachers go and talk about what they're doing, almost, you know, I look at the, the faces of the parents more than the teacher just to see how they're reacting. And almost always I see the parents there smiling, happy and saying, oh yes, yes, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And I'm the only one in the room saying like, what is this garbage? <laughs> like, like, why are you doing this? <laughs> why does this class even exist? My reaction is quite out of the ordinary. So it doesn't seem like this particular failure is, is, is about public versus private, as far as I can tell, much as I would be sympathetic to that idea. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, have you ever thought about you know how deep in human nature this goes? So uh, a couple of factors. I mean, first of all, we're not obviously the only country in the world that's adopted compulsory education. <laughs> I think pretty much every country has right. has done yeah. that, and a lot of countries have even higher rates of college attendance. And especially in some of the mm-hmm. East Asian countries, they they seem to massively overinvest even beyond what we're investing in mm-hmm. education. And um, and I, I'm thinking about you know like religious communities when I read about the ultra. ultra Orthodox Jews and how they spend their days. And I was reading about, and once I read about what it takes to become an Ayatollah in uh, Shia Islam. <laughs> I don't know if you, it's like, it's like, it's like a 20 year curriculum. I mean, it's something yeah. ridiculous. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm impressed that there is a specific <laughs> educational path towards becoming an Ayatollah. I would have thought you would have to actually form an organization and, uh, you know. no, they have, they have these, yeah, they have these seminaries where people, I mean, in, in Shia, so in Sunni Islam, I think it's, you're, you're basically, I think it's a lot more, uh, decentralized, but the, yeah. but the, I think in the Shia Islam, there's these seminaries you go to, and then you sit there for, you know, 10, 20 years. And then, you know, it's a very, like a super long PhD program and you're studying, you know, every, you know, everything about Islam that you could possibly uh, study. And, you know, what is this about human nature? I mean, because there's, there's a, there's a, um, you know, there's, it's, it's analogous. It seems very analogous to, you know, what we're doing with public education and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 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 graduate school, you know, uh, university, all that stuff. Uh, what is it about human nature that just has people sit in rooms for really long time, memorize information that is not very useful, and then give people status on that basis. Have you ever thought about what's going on there? Yeah. So it can't be that deeply rooted in human nature because it is something that emerged only in the past few centuries as something that more than a tiny share of people do. So, I mean, I think you you need to say, well, there's I mean, the, 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 the only story you could say is, well, when you combine human nature with being comfortable enough that you don't really need to have everybody working in order to survive, then maybe there's something more along these lines. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, you know, of course, you know, that like, you know, some of the things that I think, you know, are more deeply rooted in human nature. So just, you know, the love of children and, and also the ability of people to demagogue based upon love of children. This, this, I think probably is quite universal, right? So, you know, Darwin would make it very surprising if we didn't have a natural affection for children. And then, once a demagogue comes along and says, hey, I can go and say, think of the children and people give me power. So that's going to be one path toward, towards it. Um, although even there, I do think that if you think about it more historically, that there is this big wave of, of education that happens in Europe in the 19th century. And there, there seems to be a lot of just mutual limitation between European countries and countries in the Eurosphere. And then, uh, of course, not too much, you know, like, you know, like around the same time, almost the whole world is colonized by Europe, which means they go and induct local elites into their education systems. And those local elites then standardly become the new rulers of the independent versions of the country. And while they may talk a lot about returning to indigenous customs and so on, in reality, they basically just reproduce what they learned in the colonial centers. So I think that's another thing that's going on. Right. So, I mean, an analogy that I draw here is like, like, why is that we see the support for education everywhere? So, you, know, you might think about it as like, why are the Abrahamic religions so dominant? And part of it is just history, right? So, it just get, once you get the ball rolling, then the, then it can keep rolling forever. And even if it get, even if there's like the the rock splits into two rocks, like with Christianity and Islam, still they basically just keep going along. So that's part of what's going on. But then you might also say the reason they've been so successful is the Abrahamic tradition does speak very deeply to human nature in some sense. So, you know, it, it is striking how, uh, you know, cultures that seem very distant from Christianity still have had major Christian movements like, 
the Taiping Rebellion in China. And, you know, like maybe the bloodiest war of the 19th century, although it's hard to get good estimates. And it all comes from some guy saying, hey, I'm the younger brother of Jesus and let's start and, and I should be ruling everyone and let's and let, let the bloodshed begin. And that lays China waste for decades. And there's so it's like, hmm, I mean, you'd think that they would just say this is a foreign religion. Get out of here. Like yeah. this is not Chinese. But instead, there's something about the religion that was able to go and animate a large segment of China to go and start a massive civil war there. So, I mean, it's as to what exactly it is, is, uh, is puzzling, but, um, you know, really like, you know, like just like another sign of, of just the strength of the Abrahamic tradition is the way that like, you know, even now you'll sometimes have a very secular intellectual and then they have kids and then suddenly they say, now nah, like, like Christianity, that's the way. Yeah. And it's like, Really, like, like that doesn't make fit with anything you've ever said or done before. But like, so now you now you have kids, and yeah. this isn't just like a game. You really believe this now? Yeah. So yeah, so that I mean, I mean, I've encountered this several times, and I've I've been so confused, and yet obviously there's something about this tradition that really emotionally speaks to a lot of people in a way that I guess I'm just tone deaf to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about contingency versus sort of, you know, human nature or sort of laws of history or psychology. Yeah. Political scientists have these debates and, you know, they look at like correlations between different nations. Right. And then they mm-hmm. say, yeah. there, you know, there's a, uh, you know, there's a t- t- tends to be a trend, you know, you get economically developed, uh, you become a democracy and then you have everything that goes with democracy, like, you know, gay rights and low birth rates and, you know, whatever, whatever else, you know, increasing mm-hmm. education levels and sort of what they, draw from that is they have an explanation of how every step of the way, like, you know, X causes Y. Well, you know, I I sit there and I say, these aren't, you know, to find statistical significance, you need independent observations. These are not independent observations, right? They're they're usually, you know, out there. It's you know, it was like all this stuff is happening in the context of the Cold War, and then countries are just like becoming like America because that's sort of the model that they're following. And it's like the American culture is so dominant, and you know, and, and you know, the IMF and the World Bank are telling you to do this stuff, and the U.S. is telling you to democratize. And yeah, I, I you know, I wrote this piece in, uh, uh, you know, China, uh, uh, a piece about China in uh, Palladium, um, where I wrote that. You know, they led them astray and led them to think, well, this is just a law of history. So China is going to become democratic. Well, my view was, no, these countries sort of followed this pattern because they were just all working for the same template, right? There was nothing or maybe, you know, something, a little bit of a truth to that. But you can't make the assumption just because you don't have independent observations. All you have is a bunch of stuff happening together and all these countries are just influencing one another, right? Right. So... I mean, I, I mean, I guess like, like, like what I it always comes down to to me is, all right, let's think about a bet. So, I mean, I, I mean, it seems much more plausible that China will become a democracy in the next century than that America will become a dictatorship. So, I'd say there there are these are, are what seem to be global patterns, patterns where you could say statistically you can't really get hardcore identification, and yet I'll still say it seems credible enough that I would put money on it anyway. Yeah. And then part of the point of these bets is to say, it's not just me that will put money on this. I also can't find anyone that wants to put money on the other side. So it's not just me. This is basically what a bet reveals is not just what you think. It reveals a lot of people agree with you, even when they're refusing, even when they say, I don't agree with you. Yeah. So that's, well, you know, you know, like just by the theme of you know, action, speak louder than words. And a bet is an action, not just, it's not just saying stuff. It's actually that. So, I mean, I can like, like it's you know, very plausibly that China will be an outlier, although Again, still, like, 
you know, like 40% chance of multi-part, multi-part, that multi-party democracy takes hold in China in the 21st century. That seems about as low as I could go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would, I would probably bet neither. I mean, I would bet that both systems sort of survive as one is a democracy and one is the other. And probably, I think you're right, the second most likely scenario. But even with that, I, I would, that would still be that, that you know, the bet, I mean, the bet is, a way to get at it. But in this specific case, you're still working with the historic, you know, the historical yeah. context of the US and and the, the you know the ideas that were all in you, you would need another earth and then have Nazi Germany or Germany win the war, yeah. the first world war, and then see what happened to really understand if it's human nature, although the bet can get into yes. Although yeah. even even then we'd only be up to N equals two, right? And you could say yeah, N equals yeah. two. So <laughs> we need to have a thousand such worlds before the world will say it. Yeah. You know, like, like you know, honestly, like 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 for me, a lot of this is coming from a philosophical Bayesian approach and saying, look, there's always prior probabilities that we start with. And then the point of social science is just to slightly tweak those priors. It's not to get a answer out of nothing. So again, sort of the classical statistics idea is we start off having no beliefs and then we go and we do, we have an estimator and then that gives us a belief. And the Bayesian view is no, we start off with beliefs about everything. And then you see usually fairly low quality research, and then you very slightly tweak your belief up or down. Uh, so that's, I mean, you know, like, like honestly, the, a lot of that was motivating the case against education. I mean, so like the times that someone said, hey, there's one new paper out that shows you're wrong. And I'm just thinking like, one new paper cannot possibly show I'm wrong. <laughs> like, like this is this is the paper that shows that Latin actually is useful in modern society. Like, how, how like how what is this paper possibly going to show along those lines? And then you realize, look, it's a, you know, like often like it's a good paper. It's interesting. It's, it provides a small amount of additional information. But all that it would do for a reasonable person is just ever so slightly tweak the probabilities. It wouldn't be the score settling. This is the final word paper that people so often like to pretend that it is. And especially this is where social scientists are, I think probably the very worst in basically saying everyone should have what should believe whatever the general model is that is supported by the latest high quality paper. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That- you just imagine the wild oscillations that would require to actually follow that. But again, what really happens is that if the latest high quality paper uh, is, is supports what you already th- already thought, then you wave it around and otherwise you just go, ah, so <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, you know, it, it is a classic heads I win, tails I break even kind of system. Yeah, the uh, you know I was wondering how you think about these things. Uh, you know, the, uh, the education finding ethically. So uh, the Open Borders book is is sort of I think you're looking at the world and you're saying, wow, the world could be so much better. We could help so many people. All we have to do is this one simple thing, and everything that every objection you have, somebody can pay you off, and we could we could reach some kind of <laughs> kind of agreement. You know, in mm-hmm. theory, uh, for the education book, I mean, does it just strike you as just like a major, I mean, human rights violation that we're we're doing this? I mean, even if it's like. You know, even if it's 50-50 signaling versus, you know, 50% of your life of your first 20 years, 30, you know, you know, you have 20 years if you go to college and uh, grad school is literally has no social good at all. I mean, isn't this maddening? <laughs> I mean, it, it, I was somebody was showing me data on young people having less uh, wealth. And I, I said, you know, um, okay, I mean, maybe some of this can be explained that they're just spending more <laughs> years of their lives doing nothing. I mean, they're literally just <laughs> sitting in desks for, yeah. and, 
and the period he, he showed me, it was like, you know, under 30 adults. And, you know, I, I looked it up and they were, they were getting like two, two and a half more years of education since the time he was talking about. So like, if you look at your adult life from like 18 to 30, that could explain part of it because that's like one fifth of the time was just literally spent doing nothing. Um, and this is just a small, you know, wealth, but we're wasting massive amounts of human capital, people's time. Um, and it's all for nothing. I mean, that that's absolutely crazy. I mean, that this should be seen as a human rights issue and not just in one country, but all mm-hmm. over the world. I mean, isn't that, isn't that nuts? Well, let's see. I mean, but I say for you, know, for K-12, I think it is the case that most people do want daycare for their kids. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you really imagine taking kids that would have been doing something totally different and then you drag them and put them in a school for 13 years, would seem like an enormous human rights violation. When you realize, look, their parents would be paying for something very similar to this either way, then you realize, all right, so it's not as bad as it seemed when you were a teenager. Because <laughs> it's like, well, yes, I'm, in, I'm stuck here in this crummy school, but like the alternative would basically be in some other crummy school. Uh, in terms of it being you know, so, uh, bad parenting, you know, that's one that I'd be much more open to and to say, look, you know, like, why not send your kid to a school where they make him go and do the things that are actually going to be very important for him to know in the future. And then afterwards, let him be a kid. So that's where you're going to, because like I said, like, you know, pri- you know, private schools are not so, are not very different in their curricula from public schools. So I would really criticize, you know, parents, uh, you know, like they're sending their kids to school either way of like, have you looked at what your kid has to do? And I understand that literacy and numeracy are very important and uh, you, why you would want to make the kid do it, even if he doesn't want to, but the other stuff, why are you forcing this child to go and dance if he doesn't like dancing? Right. Oh, so he'll come to learn. He'll come to love it, or maybe he'll hate it all the more. Uh, <laughs> right. So, I mean, like, you know, one of the themes of my kids' book is that while I have, I'm not in principle opposed to parental paternalism and saying I know better than you, kid. But nevertheless, empirically, I see that very often when there's a disagreement between child and parent, the kid's right and the parent's wrong. Like, why do I have to do piano? I don't like piano. Like, I think the kid's almost always right in that scenario. It's like, yeah, he's he's not going to become a musician either way, and he doesn't enjoy it, so why can't he have a childhood? Uh, For Now, after that, I mean, I would say that it's very wasteful, but I would think of the main human rights violation as being of taxpayers who are forced to go and pay for this stuff, even though it's not delivering anything like the value that the proponents are claiming. For the students themselves, they say, you know, college students are usually content, at least, maybe even having a great time. Mm-hmm. So it's a little odd, a little odd to say that that's a big human rights violation for them. Again, you you could always say there's a prisoner's dilemma, and basically you put them into a prisoner's dilemma where if they were to go and not attend, then that would really mess up their lives. I think that's a better complaint. Um, so so there's that. And then once you get back to grad students, yeah, maybe they maybe maybe for them like like they're 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 pretty miserable uh, overall. So um, you know you know your minds may vary. So whenever people ask me about grad school, I always say, well. Let me just start off with a really great thing about the George Mason Econ PhD. Our students are happy. <laughs> we have happy students here who really enjoy what they're doing. Yeah. And this is not so at a lot of graduate programs. So yeah, when I was at Princeton, I would say most of the students were quite glum. Yeah. Um, I mean, some, of, some of it was just, uh, you know, like, like you know, I don't like doing this. And I mean, the, you know, the other, others was like, well, we, like, we have no hope of anything really good happening here. And <laughs> I remember one of the glummest actually went on to become a full professor at a top five school. So <laughs> in a way, I sort of want to like throttle him and say, hey, listen to your whining. <laughs> and now look at your job. And like, have, did you ever apologize for the whining? I don't think so. <laughs> Yeah, I, that's, I mean, that's my experience too. I, I always figured, 
It, well, it's a very selected, you know, a strangely self-selected group when you look at the people who are going to grad school because they have college degrees. They're usually, you know, pretty smart and they've chosen six more years of poverty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for something with an uncertain payoff. And so why people do that is an interesting question. And some people you think, well, they love truth. And when I look at academia, I don't, I don't see a lot of evidence yeah. for that hypothesis. So, so the, it seems to me they, they're, getting, they're looking for something else, right? Um, either they're afraid of going out in the world or they just want a sort of lazier lifestyle or they want the status that comes with uh, academia. Yeah, I mean, for some jobs, is, 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 you know, the PhD is a union card. So you want to be a professor, you got to have that union card. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of other ones, there's a glass ceiling if you don't have the, have the PhD. Where they're like, I can just, I can never advance. So I might as well get. I, I want to advance. Might as well get it out of the way now. For humanities PhDs, I think there you really just have to go down to they're deeply confused about what's really going on in the world, yeah. because even at very top schools, the odds of ever getting any kind of permanent teaching position are pretty slim in a lot of the humanities. So, and and, and it's one where say like, you know, do you understand how low your prospects are? Right. Uh, there is a great book on how to become a professor by Jason Brennan called Good Work If You Can Get It. And there he has all sorts of useful advice about how you can go and improve your odds of actually succeeding. But again, most of this is stuff that hardly anyone in grad school is following. Like, like you should start publishing today, yeah. right now. Why, like, are, you, are, you, are you working on something for publication? If not, then you are choosing failure. Right. And he, you know, he's very blunt about this. So like you, I'm working a paper for class, only write a paper for class that can be turned into a publishable paper, yeah. whatever you're doing, like talk to the rest or can this become a publishable paper? So that's what you'd be doing if you really wanted to succeed. And again, it does seem like a lot of the people in the humanities are just sort of drifting through the path of least resistance. They don't really know what, what's going on. And I think, they, you know, I think by the time they're looking for a job, actually they're looking for the job, they understand how hopeless it is. But if they would have started it, if they understood the sheer hopelessness of it, that's, Less clear, and then, you know, then obviously you have things like CS, where there's no big mystery about why people are doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was wondering how you think. You know, as far as like going back to the uh, uh, the human rights issue, yeah, I guess you're right. It is pretty. It is sort of sweet for the students. Although our political discourse becomes confused because people then go, "Oh, look at these young people. They have no money. They must have no opportunities." But yeah, they're they're going to Club Med for you know two three years and enjoying their lives. Uh, the, yeah, you know, a party yeah. a party a party is uh, for what it is for a lot of students, and that's of course what students missed out on in last year is they didn't get to have the party. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, sometimes I see articles like in, you know, like mostly conservative publications says, isn't great inflation so terrible and, you know, kids are doing less homework. And I'm thinking, no, <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know, if it's all signaling, yeah. like good yeah. for them to do, to be doing uh, less work, but you're right. But I think about the lost productivity to society, particularly smart people who are spending years in oh, yeah. prime. Yes, or especially those who just get sidetracked into research on something of no broader relevance to society. Yeah, uh, yeah, so, exactly. The amount of brain power spent on research that no one even reads, and even if you did read it, well, you know, what what difference would it really make? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I went to, I mean, I went to law school too, and I've published in uh, a couple uh, law review papers, and it's really awful there because law school. I mean, the top levels is basically just an IQ test; it's just the LSAT. Yeah. Um, and so you're getting smart people. They're three years. The only thing they don't teach you, they, they have classes on everything. The only thing they don't teach you is to take the bar. So kids have to take <laughs> a class. 
class on taking yeah. the bar before they take yeah. the bar exam. So everything else in yeah. the world, feminism and the law, animal rights, whatever you want to do, you know, yeah. you only have a class for that, just not the one, that, literally one thing you need to be a lawyer. And these, you know, these are smart people. If, if they were just, you know, managers at some corporations making, you know, the, the, the business a little more efficient, you know, that, that would be, you know, they're smart enough to be doing that and they'd probably be doing a great job yeah. and, and the world would be better, but, but that's, that's not what they do. Um, the, uh, you know, and you're, um, so, I mean, that's the, that's the policy uh, sort of question. How do you, I mean, how have you sort of incorporated, you know, the ideas about um, signaling about the wastefulness of education into your own teaching? So for me, hmm. uh, you know, I, I taught a, a class on game theory and one of the, at UCLA, and one of the things uh, we did, you know, one of the lessons we were teaching was about, uh, was about the signaling model of education to teach the concept of signaling mm-hmm. uh, more generally. Yeah, it's funny, one girl didn't get it because she goes, oh, so what you're telling us with this is that we should all drop out of school and stop coming. I'm yeah, like, oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you missed the point. And once I gave the signaling lecture the day before holiday, and then someone reminded me, and I said, oh, if you hadn't reminded me, I would have thought that you all, the guys all listened and, and misunderstood me. <laughs> yeah, that you all failed. <laughs> class and there's no one there, huh? <laughs> yeah, so that that's the wrong lesson. You know, the lesson is society yeah. put you in this position where you have to be here and, and listen to me, which I hope you get some benefit from. But you know, yeah, so in terms of how how it's affecting my own affecting my own teaching, so I actually have two totally different teaching gigs. So I'm a college professor, but I'm also a homeschooling dad. So as homeschooling dad, my work has an overwhelming effect on what I do. So basically, when I'm you know, teaching my own kids, I say, okay, first of all, we're here to acquire a, a, a list of, of valuable skills. Right. And we're going to do that whether you like it or not. Secondly, we're here to go and learn things that, that uh, you, you personally are interested in learning about because it's relevant to your future. And then third, we're, we're third, if there's anything that you enjoy, we'll do that. And then finally, we're also going to go and take a try and figure and try to crack the system, figure out all of the garbage that we can skip. And then filter through that and find what is the garbage that we can't skip if we're going to go to go to a decent college. So those are all the things that I do as a homeschooling teacher. So, you know, like for my younger kids, like all we do really is you know, math, reading, writing. Right. And the, so the math is the one thing that I put a lot of effort into. And like every day we spend an hour going over math and math problems and then the writing, um, you know, so like, you know, that so just, you know, like just go and write about something, anything that you're interested in, just write about it. And then the reading, yeah, just read any book, anything you're interested in reading, just read about that. And I mean, other than that, for the younger kids, I don't have them do anything actually. So that's the, the, the so I just feel like I just want you to have a good childhood. We're going to let them start doing things that they're they're more interested in. They go beyond the basics. Uh, pardon? What will you you distinguish between older kids and younger kids? What, what, what uh, oh, okay. So we'll be able for the old basically you know, for, for the younger kids, I mean, like being younger, they're just less interested in, <laughs> in non-play stuff. So, you know, if there were a younger kid that really wanted to learn CS or something like that, that'd be great. But that's not the kids I have. Yeah, uh, yeah for older kids, that's where I'd be more focused on, okay, so now we need to go and start getting our resume in order for college applications. And for some things we can weasel out of them and other things we can't weasel. Yeah. Right. And then, there, you know, there's a lot of uh, like, like, I mean, I put a lot of thought into what can we weasel in on what can we not weasel on. So, for example, we mostly weaseled out of geometry. And I said, look, geometry, you only need to know the geometry that's on the SAT. All other geometry, we don't need to know. It's not cumulative. It doesn't really fit in with the rest of the math sequence. Whereas, say, you know, like algebra, algebra two, you know, trigonometry, calculus, this is stuff that's all cumulative. And if you're doing anything in STEM, you've got to learn all this stuff. So that's stuff where we're going to just go forward right ahead. And then for, you know, it's like foreign language, I 
weighed that quite a bit. And I said, I just don't think we can reuse a lot of foreign language and still go to a good college. I mean, even if we get in, they'll still make you do it and it'll be harder to learn it at a later age. So we should just go and do this now. Uh, so anyway, that's what I do for my own kids who I'll admit, I love them a lot more than any of my other students. And, <laughs> and, I'm really, and I'm really racking my brain to make their childhood as good as it possibly can be while preparing them for the future. Uh, for the students that I actually teach as part of my paid job, there, I would say the main thing that I do is if there's something that is uh, that, that is standardly taught, but I think it's boring and not very insightful, doesn't really, you know, you know doesn't you know, not really very enlightening, then I quickly gloss over it. So, for example, I mean, I've been in mo most macro classes I've been in spend two or three weeks on national income and product accounting, and I do it in like 20 minutes. And I just look, here's the gist of it. Here's what you need to know. We don't need to know how depreciation works or anything else. It's like a measure of general production. Here's how you do it. And then I'd be much more likely to say, let's go and spend some time on what's wrong with the numbers, such as not counting leisure time, right? Or I might say like, what's wrong with the, what, you know, like other things, like not properly accounting for changes in product quality, which means that we overstate inflation, which means that actually economic growth has been a lot higher than official numbers say. That's the kind of thing that I would that I would spend a lot more time talking about. Where it's it's you know, it, it is directly relevant to something people actually care about, rather than the details of the of how the accounting methods, which hardly any student will ever use again. And it, and if they learn it, they'll only learn it for the exam, and it won't enlighten them on any other issue. So there's that. Or like when I'm teaching PhD micro, I do general equilibrium in one week, whereas I think normal would be about six weeks. And I just say, look, I'm just gonna give you I'm gonna give you the highlights. This is not something that's really very useful or informative or enlightening. It's just something that you need to know because other people in our field also know it. So you need to understand what they're talking about, but we don't need to go into the details of it because it's just a giant distraction and signaling game. So there's that. Um, you know, on the other hand, I will say that you know, part of it, part of it is I realize, look, this is signaling. And so part of like one of the things I'm going to do is try to make sure that the good grades go to the students who actually did their job and, and learned the material and bad grades go to the students that slacked off so that at least employers can get an accurate measure of what they're getting when it's time to hire them. Yeah. So, yeah. Same. I mean, same here. I think, yeah, my, my, I, I took a little bit more of a hands-off approach to teaching. I mean, once I really started taking the uh, signaling model of, you know, education seriously, it's not like, the more stuff I can cram into their brain or the more hours of their lives I can take, the better they can get. I'm just giving them a, um, you know, a relative grade. So, and the relative is, you know, high, whatever, like whatever, you know, the grade inflation is, you know, whatever the mean is, I mean, it'll, it'll adjust. Right. So like if people care about GPA, yeah. uh, you know, I'll just, I'll just go with, you know, whatever, whatever the standard is, it's, it's not an absolute standard. Um, yeah, I mean, the main signaling critique of grade inflation is just that if there's too much grade inflation, then people have to get additional degrees after the <laughs> afterwards in order to distinguish themselves because you know, obviously if everyone just got uh, got A's, then the only way to distinguish yourself would be to go and do another, yet another degree. So I mean, I've often said, actually, the best thing for signaling is to have high standards, strict standards, and where you just get flunked out and then that's the end of it. Right. And I say that would be a good way of saving resources if we just say, look, you know, like, you know, you had your chance, you failed, and now you got to go on with your life. Uh, is it, do um, do employers? I mean, do employers for uh, uh, people just hiring people out of college actually look at GPA, or is, is that is that just so? That's a good question. So, like, there is this whole field called industrial psychology where they measure things like this. Economists don't do much of it, but the industrial industrial psychologists do. And I think that you know, like, while there is some debate, I think the general view is that you know GPA does actually is actually used by employers to, to you know, probabilistically again primarily for initial hire mm -hmm. for initial hiring. 
So, you know, when they don't know anything about you, when you have very little experience, then they'll look at you know, multiple things. Of course, they'll look at the school you went to, look at your major, but also you know, look at the coursework a bit, but but all about GPA as well. So, the, you know, that would be factored in. I don't think that it's a GPA is going to be considered by employers five years out or anything like that. But I mean, like like the best way of thinking about most most hiring is employers are looking for reasons to say no. So they have an enormous stack of people. They don't have anywhere near enough time in the day to interview them all. So basically, step one is to throw out 80% of the applications. And that's where I think GPA really matters. Yeah, it's a a reason to throw you away. Gotcha. Uh, The um, yeah, let's let's move on to, um, you know, speaking of big ideas and important ideas that don't get their uh, don't get their due. Uh, so your other book, uh, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, well, um, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've looked through it. I, I didn't read it, like I said, because I, I've, I've, I'm familiar, you know, pretty deeply with this research. But even the people who do the research and publish papers and books on it often don't talk about the, uh, you know, the, the important, I think, philosophical implications of this. I mean, often when you when you hear people say, you know, why don't people have kids, even if we, whether just, you know, anecdotally or just uh, looking at like polling, you know, they'll say stuff like we can't. You know, people can't, they say they can't afford it. Um, And then you look at like countries by total fertility, right? Yeah. It's like, wow, Congo and Niger must be, they must be living it up there. I mean, they can, they can afford it. Must be much better places to live than, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, And so, um, yeah, you know, the behavioral genetics literature, I think is just so fascinating because I think, you know, I think this stuff should be fundamental. I mean, every social science basically deals with, you know, how can you, change people to some extent. I mean, not every social science, but you know, there's a part of this in economics, yeah. there's part of this political science, sociology, and you need to know what percentage of what you can change is actually changeable, right? Mm-hmm. You need to have some kind of idea of that. And if it's, you know, the blank slate model, then there's a lot for social mm-hmm. science to do. If it's more of a, more leads towards genetic determinism, there's maybe less for social science and, you know, policy to do. So I, I think, you know, just for being philosophically interesting, I think this is just so basic and yet it goes ignored um do, you know do, do you have any do you have any thoughts on that just like you know people not taking the ideas the lessons of behavioral genetics seriously yeah so i've got a lot to say about that actually um so i mean most of this behavioral genetics research in fact like virtually all of it is produced by people who are professors and their goal is to go and get a paper published in some journal and then move on with their lives like so almost no one that's doing this work is actually interested in doing anything with it actually yeah. Uh, you know, this is not limited just to behavioral genetics. I also found this in education research where number of papers saying, oh, we found this thing in education. Okay, now moving on. And like the idea that anything might ever change based upon the research is just, you know, again, it's not the world doesn't listen. It's that the people that produce the research barely make any effort to even communicate that their findings or try to sell anyone on what they're doing. Uh, so, you know, you publish a piece on the behavioral genetics of teeth and then you say, all right, I'm done. I'm published in the Journal of Genetic Dentistry and now I'm moving on with my life. So a lot of what I wanted to do in this book was to put the research together in a way where people could see the big picture and see how you might actually change the way that you live. Now, I know that, you know, as you were mentioning, Judith Harris's book, The Nurture Assumption, was filling a very similar niche. What was striking about that book to me is that she focused almost entirely on the behavioral genetics of personality. And Mm -hmm. there, I think there is a very natural reply to this and say, well, look, Parents don't matter much for personality because they're not trying to affect personality very much. Personality is the kind of thing that parents know one should respect and, and just treat as a tree that just grows in its own special way. And it's not the parent's place to try to go and say what the tree does. And so 
there's, I think people could reasonably say, look, you know, Harith finds that upbringing isn't very important because she's studying the parts of upbringing where parents are not, or they're studying the, the adult traits that parents are not really trying to change. So what I did is I tried to just cast a much broader net and find all sorts of adult traits that parents are clearly trying to change, like your educational success or your income or your church attendance, you know, th- you know these things. And that's where I said, you know, like Harris's results are actually very, you know, that she's reporting are very general. And that actually, even for all of these things where parents clearly desperately are wanting and trying hard to make a difference, we don't see very much effect. Now, the way that you were interpreting it, I think is not quite right in that even if you go and get a heritability estimate of 100%, this does not actually show that, uh, that you cannot change the child. It just shows that within the observed range of what parents actually do, yeah. no, well, none of that, none of the variation in that changes kids. But it always remains possible that there's something else that could be done that would actually that would make a very big difference. Yeah. And then the question is, like, okay, what would that thing actually be? Now, a hope I think that people have is that there's just a bunch of magic bullets where you just give them Wheaties every third Wednesday, and then they will become a Nobel Prize winner. And it's like, well, then why have we found it? Because no one's doing this exact specific thing. But if we did it, you know, like this tiny little intervention would dramatically change life. Now, I think almost no one really believes in these magic bullets. So then what's the other alternative? The other alternative is to say, look, if we want to go and get this effect, either we have to, like, we're going to have to drastically ramp up the effort. Or maybe just once we realize how much effort it would take, we, we give up. So, you know, one of my favorite examples here is foreign language acquisition. So this is this overlaps with both education and child, uh, child, raise, uh, child rearing. So if you go and look at a representative survey of adult Americans, less than 1% even claim to have learned to speak a foreign language very well in school. So it's like less than 1%, all right? Claim just so that we've learned it and people would tend to exaggerate that. So now, you know, from that, you could have two reactions. One reaction is... Well, in that case, let's go and try a lot harder so they actually do learn the foreign language. On the other hand, you could say, well, apparently it's, uh, you know, it's too hard. So for that, what you really want to do is say, well, how hard are we trying right now? All right. So how hard we're trying right now is basically that you do you know, minimum, about a minimum of two years, more often three years if you're going to college, a foreign language. And once you realize you're already spending three years of life on it, to say we should do a lot more seems to my mind is pretty crazy. Yeah. Like, like, you know, so what, we're going to spend 10 years on this thing? Like, like, and maybe that probably even that wouldn't be enough. Uh, Now, like for my older homeschool kids, I I said, like, I just don't think we can weasel out a foreign language and go to a good college. So, you know, they actually did, uh, you know, acquire genuine Spanish fluency, right, through homeschooling. And not, you know, this is one where I had to hire other tutors and so on, because I can't do it. I went to regular school, so I don't speak Spanish. I only, I just had three years of crummy public school and Spanish education, yeah. but you know, like even with my kids and like getting all, you know, getting special tutors and doing college Spanish, even that wouldn't be near, have been nearly enough, except that they started speaking only Spanish to each other. Mm-hmm. So I would say they probably put in about 50 times as much effort as a normal person would, a normal kid would into this. And that was enough. Yeah. Okay. That did it. That did the yeah. trick. So what this means is that you know, like, you know, you know like you this is changeable. It can be done. The real question is just, does it make sense to put 50 times as much effort into this thing where my, you know, my sons really enjoy Spanish now, but you know, like even they will say, yeah, like as to what I would exactly do with it is kind of unclear, but I don't know, like, you know, improves your dating pool or whatever, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, the, well, yeah, it's, I think, you know, I think I'd, uh, 
you know, yeah, you're right that you, uh, you know, didn't mean to imply that you can't uh, yeah. change the world through policy or, or effort. Right. You know, because you look at things right. that change. Right. Or, or kids, right? You know, heritability estimates do not mean that kids are, are unchangeable, just meaning that it just means that you don't see much sign that exa- existing parenting changes them. So, yeah. you know, so like it's doesn't versus can't. Parenting doesn't matter much. Can't yeah. is a harder judgment, although it does mean you have to look in the mirror and say, either I know some magic tricks of parenting that are low cost, but incredibly effective, or I am so unusual, so I'm so out of the norm, I'm going to do something that one person in 10,000 does. Well, and then that Brian, do Brian Kaplan might be yeah. one person yeah. in 10,000, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm going to stick my neck out and say, I, I think I did give my older kids a one in 10,000 educational experience for middle school and high school. You know, like, you know, they were taking AP tests in seventh grade and doing college classes when they were 12. So that's pretty weird. And I think we see some effects of that. Of course, you can always say it would have happened anyway. Yeah. A minimum, I say it like it would have happened later. Yeah. Well, I think if you're a good social scientist and you deal with big issues, which I think, you know, that's the way you think of yourself. That's why, I, you know, I think of you. I think that's got to have some effect. Now, how many people are data driven and are giving their kids to the truth about the world. So well, yeah. once, once, once you've given somebody that, I think that could be valuable. It wouldn't show up in cross adoption studies because yeah. you know, 99% of people are just normal and they have normal views and normal interests mm-hmm. and, and normal. Yeah. And just, and just you know, no, normal commitment. So like I think of myself as a very obsessive person. Once I get into something, I really get into it. Uh, that can be bad for you if you're focused on something that is a waste of time. On the other hand, it also means that when you apply yourself in a good direction, like you are, you are much more likely than other people to finally get some results out of it. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that's been a you know, big part of, you know, of, you know, of working with my kids is like, what are things that are worthwhile really putting a lot of effort into, you know, like, I mean, I also try to get feedback from my kids about, well, like, you know, like, is this, does this seem valuable to you? Is this something you want to pursue further? And if they say, no, it's like, all right, well, I mean, I guess you don't really need, need this, so we can just move on. Have you um, have you gotten a lot of emails or, or letters or whatever from people who uh, read Selfish Reasons to have more kids and actually decided to have more kids? Has that been a, a rewarding? Yeah. So I mean, I mean, I, I, yeah, I have actually, and again, probably out of all the stuff that I've actually accomplished in the real world, it's the most gratifying. It's the biggest deal. So yeah. I've I actually have this idea of the poll where the audience is highly self-selected and yet still the answer is informative and. Uh, there is there is such a th- there is such a poll. So if you do a poll saying, "Did Brian convince you to have another child?" All right. Now, on the one hand, it's going to be a very self-selected number of people will respond to that. But yeah. if the total number of people say yes is a hundred people, it's like, well, so that probably means yeah, is a, is a, a minimum is a bare minimum of the actual number that I change the minds of. So yeah. you know, basically, poll, you know, like self-selected polls, where the goal is just to count the minimum of something in the world. That's, uh, you know, that, you know, I think that's, that's you know, pretty useful. So there's actually a YouTube video of a guy and his daughter and she, and he's having her thank me for convincing him to have her. Yeah. So, and cool. I, and I suddenly, you know, actually, actually met the guy, but so anyway, it's, it's like, it's like a message from beyond the grave where it's really, it's a message from oblivion from never would have been. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's like, like in terms of getting a swelled ego, it's like my words create life. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, so I think that, I mean, total number of people who, that I, that have at least you know said so on the internet. I think it's over 100 people have said they've been convinced by me to have at least one additional kid. So if you just put in like a standard value of life calculation, that's 
like yeah. over a billion dollars worth of value that I've created. So I, I don't capture it, but uh, still, it's my <laughs> gift to the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, I mean, the uh, it was yeah the behavioral genetics literature. I mean, did have that effect on me. I mean, were you originally influenced uh, uh, in that way to to make family a priority? So, so there was basically a double whammy for me. So I read the nurture assumption before I well, I was a parent, but then my first two kids were identical twins, and having them. It was a daily reminder, like you are the kinds of people people study to find out how people turn out or why people turn out the way that people do, right? So like having them around, it really you know, just put it on my mind a lot more than it otherwise would have been. And yeah, that's uh, that's very plausible to me anyway, that that is, I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't happen to have identical twins as my first two kids, right? And then, you know, like in writing that, uh, you know, that book, I had my, you know, my, my third son, and then we had my, uh, my fourth child a few years, a few years after that. Uh, but yeah, that was so like in the end, like it made a big difference in my life, but it was, it was complicated in that, you know, like you know, when we like, I don't think it had influenced me when we were first trying, but it was sort of this coincidence that we had identical twins. And then that just made me much more conscious of the research and more interested to learn more. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the basic argument is that it's a lot funner and not as hard as you think, or at least it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be. As yes. hard as you think. Yeah. This is the self-imposed misery is what. Yeah. It's so clear to me because look, I'm just going to be honest. And I'll say like, like I've known a lot of parents of young kids and most of them seem less happy by quite a bit than they did before they had the kids. Yeah. All right. And look, that's just honest. And people say, well, that totally cuts against your thesis. And I know no, my thesis is that parents are needlessly making themselves miserable Yeah. so well, they can have the kids and still have a very nice life, but they are making a bad trade-off based upon a misunderstanding of the science. So I say, look, you know, like, don't blame the kids, blame the misconceptions about the science of nature and nurture. Uh, so, I mean, I said like, you know, basically you know, like I've said like, like, you know, parents being unhappy or at least less happy than, uh, than, 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 uh, than otherwise similar single people. You know, like not only does it not contradict my thesis, it motivates the, it motivates the entire book. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. if parents were already uh, like super happy, then you'd say, well, like, 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 why do they need you? Like, like you, like, like, but on the other hand, it's if they're unhappy and they say, you know, like, I can show you a happier path. Yeah. That's where there's really some value to offer. And it, and it connects so nicely to the case against education, because one mm-hmm. of the things makes people nervous, nervous and drives people crazy is, is finding the right schools and affording the yeah. right schools. And I was reading, I don't know if you saw, did you see the Barry Weiss piece in, uh, uh, City Journal, I think it was, or uh, one of those websites, or where she talks about this, um, these uh, school of, you know, the, the, the angle is that there's this woke uh, elementary school, and mm-hmm. the parents are unhappy because they're teaching them, you know, critical race theory and, the, the, and all this kind of stuff, and you know, the parents are paying fifty five thousand yeah. dollars a year, <laughs> and I'm like, well, the, your headline is, wow, these poor people are being brainwashed, and I'm reading this, I'm like, what, what on earth are they doing? They're they're pay, they're voluntarily paying for this, um, yeah. and they hate, you know, they hate the curriculum on top of it. So what on earth are they doing? That's that's the interesting mm-hmm. part to me, not. Yep. Specifics of the yeah, I mean, all, all based on a testable theory that this will lead to a large improvement in their kids' prospects in the future. And almost all the research says like it'll be somewhere between zero and small. So yeah, I mean it's like pretty pretty crazy. Do you think the um do you think the resistance to these ideas, these ideas both about the, the behavioral genetics and the limited um influence of education on on you know people's, you know. Personality. I mean, they're basically the same thing, right? Because they're mm-hmm. they're both basically saying there's a limit to what parenting can do. There's a limit to what the school what schools can do to make people you know smarter or better somehow in life. Um, is the resistance to that that people just want 
you know, they, they have a sort of a utopian idea. It's got to be either parents or it's got to be school. There's got to be some way we got to remove these equalities and just make people better. And they don't like these big, obvious truths because it's just it's it just contradicts that, you know, that entire narrative and makes it seem impossible or very, very difficult. Yeah. So definitely ugly, ugly truths are unpopular. Right. And they're so unpopular that a lot of people don't even feel comfortable hearing them, much less saying them. Right. So, you know, just say, look, like, you know, some kids, some kids are a lot smarter than others. Some kids are really stupid. Like, you're never going to make friends saying that. And yet, like, obviously. Right. Anyone's anyone who's gone to school knows that there's just stupid kids. Yeah. Of course. Like, like and say, no, there's no such thing as a stupid kid. It's just a kid where you haven't found the right way of teaching them. Like, look, almost by definition, a stupid person is someone who like fails to learn when you like through a wide variety of different methods and they still <laughs> don't learn it or they learn it very slowly. That's what it is to be stupid. Right. And like that's just a fact of the world, is like it doesn't mean to go around telling people, ha, you're stupid, but also means don't base policy upon a sugar-coated view of how the world actually works. Yeah. So, right. And just realize like you can end up be treating people very cruelly when you don't face facts. So like keep trying to go and, and make someone spend year, you know, ever more years in school when they're just not academically oriented, like, you know, which could be personality as well. There's a lot of people who are quite bright who just hate school because it's just so boring and you're not really, and they don't feel, and, they, and they're doers. Right. So people like you and me are people who just like toying with ideas. A lot of people find this painful and they'd much rather you know, put a ship in a bottle today than, <laughs> than go and, and, uh, and read some articles. So there's just a lot of people who you know, like actually rolling their sleeves and doing things. And school is very hard, very just unpleasant for them and very hard for them to cope. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And, you know, and then, uh, you know, like the, the ugly truth that a lot of what you're learning in school is irrelevant in real life. You'll never need to do it again. Well, you know, that's you know, ugly truth that students forget most of what they learn after final exam for the very, you know, because it's not so very relevant. These are all things that people really don't like hearing. And then again, for, you know, for, uh, for kids, uh, you know, this is one where I think there's also like a lot of, a lot of sunk cost fallacy going on where once a parent has suffered a lot, they want to hear it, it, it was worthwhile. Mm. <laughs> now, if this is right, then if I can get people before they actually sunk any investment in, then they'll be more persuadable. There's other theories that would predict that just keep their younger then, so they're more persuadable then too. But it's at least plausible to me that yeah, if I could get to people before they've really before they've really suffered a lot, that they will be uh, you know that they would actually then say, fine, there's a lot of parts of parenting that I'll just skip because they're not very fun and aren't really beneficial to the child either. Uh, so yeah, so there's that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I like ideas as an adult, as a kid, I, I sort of liked ideas too. Uh, but I went to, I, I think I had a lot of a different experience from a lot of smart people. And then my parents were immigrants and we, I went to like a more lower class uh, hmm. school where the kids were on average, you know, here's another ugly truth, not, not as smart as people who grew up in, you know, high socioeconomic status areas. Hmm. And it was like the class. So the class, uh, you know, sort of the progress of schooling was very, very slow. Um, which drove me absolutely crazy. And then it was also the culture of the other kids um, was, you know, they sort of made fun of you if you had any intellectual interests. Mm -hmm. Yes. So for a while, I mean, I was both tortured in school because it was so slow and boring and then sort of got it into my idea for a while that it was uncool to actually like go out and mm-hmm. try to do stuff on my own. Um, and yeah, it was just a horrible experience for me. Actually. I was, uh, I read the, um, uh, there's a Scott Alexander post where he apparently felt the same way and has a lot of uh, feedback from his readers and you know, they talk about just sort of the prison-like atmosphere they felt. And one of the things I like about, you know, you talk about the, is it that bad of a human rights violation? I think, I think in, in the, 
you know, I think for some people it is really, really bad. And mm -hmm. what you would have in a more, uh, you know, a, a system of norms where, you know, people just sort of had a more individualized, more market-based approach is that the kids who just find it torture to just sit there and do nothing or, or are just not getting anything out of it. You know, their parents would, would realize that. I know you say the private school is not that different, but the private school at least is, um, is very, you know, segregated by uh, economics and, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. ability and all these other mm -hmm. things. So I think one of the things that was particularly bad for me from the public school was the fact that, you know, there was these just kids of <clears throat> different backgrounds and different yeah, the, the mixing. Right. You know, like, like, you know, like, you know, there's been research on whether tracking actually improves student performance. And so, you know, like, even if it doesn't still like just like getting a kid who's suffering by the, from the slow pace of his peers and letting him be in a class where he's not so miserable, there's some value to that. So, you know, like it doesn't just have to be the improving learning. It could also just be the quality of life of the student. Which I mean, I say like, like like one you know general theme like you know, for both the kids in the education book is just a great discounting of the of the feelings of the child. Yeah, right. And just really you know like like, like you're like you're, you know, you're in case of twelve, it's thirteen years. It's a very large share of your life, and just say who cares whether you're miserable for those thirteen years? Uh, it's like oh, like why wouldn't you care? It seems important. Right. So, you know, like, and generally, like, you know, this is, you know, one, one of a number of cases where when people criticize, they, they would rather say, well, there's some long run problem, which is totally debatable rather than some short run cost, which is totally clear. So, you know, you know people would rather say things like, you know, K through 12 is, you know, like, like could cause anxiety in adulthood than just to say, like, kids are unhappy right now. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you get over it. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. absolutely right. If you're an adult till you're 18, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a huge portion. That's a huge portion of your life for the kids, you know, interest not to be considered at all. It's yeah. pretty, it's pretty <laughs> crazy. Yeah. You might, you might uh, not hurt your anxiety as an adult, but if you're spending mm -hmm. 12 years anxious, you know, yeah. five, eight hours a day, five days a week, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. Um, Okay, great. I mean, the yeah, I mean, I, I love these. I love these topics. I think they're important. And you know, the I mean, the other one is I think you know we could just talk about a little bit about open borders, and it's different than the other book because it's sort of a it's sort of a comic book, right? Yeah. So it's a nonfiction graphic novel, which is the actual term in the business. It's a little confusing because you think of novels as by definition being fiction, although even that is not true. So Truman Capote's In Cold Blood was billed as a nonfiction novel, uh, but. Uh, you know, so anyway, I mean, I'd read a number of books like this and, you know, some are good, some are bad, but the good ones were really good. So for example, Larry Gonick's Cartoon History of the Universe, five volumes where he takes you through the totality of human history. And I found that, you know, like not only was it just, you know, like you know, by combining words and pictures conveyed more information per minute's time, by being more entertaining, it got you reading for a larger number of minutes. And then finally notice that it can be very accurate. You can carefully fact check a work like this. So, like any area of human any area of human, you know, of human history that I knew well, Gonic, uh, you know, seemed to be very accurate. So, I, the idea of what if I were to go and do a book like this, where I take research and immigration and just try to present it in a more engaging format and both communicate more per minute, but get people reading, you know, reading for a larger amount of time, and and also just for me, it was just a, you know, a fun thing to do. So, I, I'm not able to actually draw, but. I do think visually. So I fully storyboarded these books using some old comics book software and Google images and then wrote the script. And then I was able to find uh, my dream illustrator, Zach Wienersmith, who does Saturday morning breakfast cereal. So that was just a dream come true that I got Zach to collaborate with me on that book. Have you seen the, uh, have you seen the, um, there was a post, I forget who wrote this, but it was a blog somewhere. It said the case against books. Have you seen this? 
maybe was it Matt Iglesias or? Uh, no, I don't think it wasn't Iglesias. Maybe okay, Iglesias. Yeah, well, so Matt Iglesias had this review of open borders where he said, yeah, really, there's no reason to do anything other than books like this for educating a broader audience on public policy. Like, why do we write you? Like, who, who, who imagines that a normal person would ever read any policy book? Yeah. Better to just hand them a comic book uh, that summarizes the information in a more entertaining fashion. But, but I guess I don't know the case against books then. Yeah, and I I know you yeah well I I know you I mean I know you deal with this uh, in in the book but the the question of I think I think the one you know some things you say in that in the in the open borders book are undeniable like you know if you do a cost benefit and you consider every relevant actor that includes mm-hmm. the people who live in the country and the people who want to immigrate to the to the United States in this case uh, I think you get you get yeah I think the benefits of migration are clearly positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're also dealing at the same time when you try to address this, and some people just don't care. They don't want to take the they don't want to take the interest of every relevant actor into account. They mm-hmm. only want to care about uh, the country itself. Mm-hmm. And your answer to that is, look, no matter how bad you know you think you know you, you think the effects are, the benefit to the migrants are so large that you know there there could be some deal worked out right mm-hmm. is, is that is that is that sort of the animating spirit well, so so that's sort of my second line of defense my first line of defense is that in all of economic history it is not possible to find any example of a very large increase in production that was not broadly beneficial right so if you just look anywhere again of course sometimes there there is a very specific innovation that's not broadly beneficial but anytime there is some broad increase in productivity it is just an iron law of economics that through the price mechanism, a lot of the benefit winds up getting shared with other people. So the main beneficiaries of the vaccine are not the people who made the vaccine. Like obviously, yeah. <laughs> or if they capture, they're lucky to capture 1% of the value that they created and the rest of it gets shared with us. And, you know, and, you know, and, you know, like, and we just get to enjoy it as consumer surplus. And same with the industrial revolution, same with the internet. So, so, you know, if you just go down the list of large increases in production, I say there's no example where it wasn't broadly beneficial. And so I say, since the key economic argument for open borders is that it lets labor move from places where there's low productivity to places where there's high productivity, we should totally expect that large increase in production to be broadly shared as well. But you know, if you just look at what immigrants do, so, you know, immigrants move to a town and they open restaurants and then are restaurants just something that benefits people who work in the restaurants or own the restaurants? No, like, all the people who eat there get to enjoy the food, right? Mm-hmm. So, and again, the same goes for anything that immigrants wind up doing is to sell the product, they have to put it on the market. When there's a large increase in supply, prices go down and it gets shared with a very broad population. So that's the main, that is my main point is actually that you shouldn't think about the legal incidents as being the same as the economic incidents. Uh, so, you know, you know, like, like, you know, like, you know, flip side of this is, there could be terrible weather, which is actually great for orange farmers because it raises the world price of oranges so much. Mm-hmm. So you look at it and say, those poor farmers, they're half their crops been destroyed. It's like, no, those lucky farmers, because through the price mechanism, they're making more money than before because demand is inelastic. All right. So that is, I say, like the big thing to focus on. But then second thing is what you say, that even if it were true that immigrants were getting the lion's share of the benefits or that actually natives were losing and uh, foreigners were winning, then yes, the you know, like you know, standard economic policy says, let's make a deal. Let's go and figure out a way to go and transfer some resources from the winners to the losers, so the losers become winners, right? And you know, like obvious thing is you know, you work here, but you have to pay extra taxes, or you, know, you can work here, but you have to pay an entrance fee, right? 
And it is, or, yeah, or you can work here, but you're not eligible for benefits or there's some limitation on benefits. These are all pretty obvious uh, deals you could offer. And it is worth pointing out that the countries on earth that have the very highest foreign born shares, none of them actually treat immigrants like they are treated in the first world. So basically yeah. the Gulf monarchies are the countries that are notorious for treating migrants poorly, especially mm-hmm. those good migrants. And they also have the largest foreign born shares on earth by far. Yeah. So like Kuwait would be like 85% foreign born. And if you're saying what's going on here, well, it's no coincidence. You know, the, you know, the Gulf monarchies, they let in low skilled workers on purpose. It's not just the low skilled workers sneak in and they say, we don't have the heart to kick them out. They let them in and they say, yeah, well, we have some low skilled work we want you guys to do. We want janitors. We want nannies. We, uh, we, want, we want people to work in construction. And, uh, and you guess what? You're not going to be eligible for any welfare and there's going to be a deposit that you're going to have to pay and a bunch of other restrictions. And you're not allowed to do a bunch of things that regular citizens can do. And then you still see a ton of people want to do it because they make five times as much money in Kuwait as they would back home in Pakistan. Yeah. Right. So, and again, like, like all the countries with very high shares of foreign born shares, they all have a lot of restrictions like this. And Singapore, which is the one that's closest to being Western democracy, they're, you know, they also have a lot of restrictions. And I think they're at like 40% foreign born. So they're not anywhere near Kuwait, but still very high. And again, the story is pretty obvious that if you feel like you have to treat every immigrant like an honored guest, then you don't really want to have a lot of guests. On the other hand, if you treat them like the hired help, then it's like, hey, Hired help. I like hired help. So that is the difference. And, you know, and again, you know, like so much of this just comes down to this immature squeamishness. Uh, I feel so sorry for them if I let them in and they didn't, weren't able to get the same benefits as everyone else. So yeah. let's not have them come. So I don't have to look at them and feel sorry for them. Yeah. Right? So, wow, you're quite a humanitarian there. <laughs> you're going to ruin someone's life. So you don't have to look at their misery. Great. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I have this slogan where I say like, pay them the common courtesy of not caring about them. Yeah. That would be so much better than what you're doing. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, I just Googled uh, Kuwait. Get Kuwait foreign board percentage is 75%. 75, okay, so I'm a little high. But yeah. And then so Qatar, the is, Qatar is actually higher. Qatar, as they say, is uh, 65. I've seen, I see uh, 65 in Qatar. And who knows? This is the first thing that comes up in Google. 88% UAE. So we're talking about... Oh, okay, yeah. So it's probably, it's probably really mixing up UAE and, 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 and Kuwait. Huh? So, yeah. But that'd be bad, but, uh, thank, you, thank, you, thank you for fact-checking me, Richard. Uh, <laughs> no, keep, I, keeps I, me I, honest. Uh, yeah. Number of times I tell my students, okay, I think I remember this. And then, but then normally they just take, take it as gospel, even though I have given the disclaimer of I'm just doing it from memory. Look, the, the fact-check is a website called uh, statista.com. So I don't know. Someone is going to have to fact-check that fact-check. I don't, even, I don't know if that's accurate, but they tend to have numbers for, for everything. Yeah, it's funny because I think if you asked probably the right or the left, like if you gave them a bunch of policy options, I think I think somehow yours would be last place for all of them. <laughs> Maybe the right would take that over uh, just open borders with full citizenship, right? So I mm-hmm. think it would be probably close to second yeah. to last for the right and for the left. I mean, I think that would be wor- I think that would be actually worse for yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, just for just for you know, typical person, you know, it's like people again don't like ugly truths and things that sound good, sound bad, but are good. People don't want them. Yeah, I mean, do you think? I mean, isn't is is that is the the infeasibility of it the an argument against your case? Because um, you know, when you do selfish reasons to have more kids, maybe you can convince people it's in their own interest, and you're sort of working with human nature there, and yeah. so you might you might get it. Um, with this, you're just going against sort of every value people currently hold, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. is that an argument against just you know this is a nice thought experiment, but just not realistic. Right. Well, so, so you know, like in one sense, it's realistic. Like if we wanted to do it, we could totally do it. 
Um, Like I don't have illusions about how persuasive I am. I don't think that by going and defending something really unpopular that I'm going to transform our society or anything like that. Say like, you know, like as to why I do it. So, you know, like partly I am an academic and just the search for truth means a lot to me. Uh, you know, partly by personality, I just don't enjoy going and proposing marginal changes. I like going and talking about the, like what would actually be the best thing we could possibly do. Uh, so there's that. Um, you know, yeah, but then you know, partly I, I say also just by going and making the strongest case for what I think is the best policy. I think it does disarm the criticism and at least make people at the margin more willing to consider more moderate reform. So, you know, I think there's probably, you know, people can read open borders and if they ever are have a position to decide immigration policy, I think it does at least steal them towards let's err on the side of having, you know, having more immigration. In terms of it really being feasible, I'd say, well, like, you know, the fact that Gulf monarchies do it, I mean, it can be done, mm-hmm. right? It's, you know, it is doable, right? And so, you know, like, so much of the reason why it's not done is just that people have some bad arguments against it. So, um, you know, I get some value there. But, you know, like, you know, just had to remember, like, you know, I'm just one person. I can't realistically expect to get results on anything, actually. So I just try to do a good job and to, you know, defend positions that I, th- that I think are neglected and worthwhile. Do you, um, you think that you might be underestimating your in, your influence uh, because there, um, I feel like the Overton window on this issue has shifted. And I think if someone was a Brian Kaplan, and mm-hmm. they, you know, if there was a, a disciple of Brian Kaplan and then on this issue, I think what they wouldn't do is run for office and say, I'm for open borders. Mm-hmm. I think they would run for office maybe as a liberal Democrat or just some kind of normal person and mm-hmm. then pretty much act as a open borders mm-hmm. person, right? Um, So the fact that nobody is saying in the political realm, open borders is not an indication. It's sort of like in the other, the other direction. I think a lot of the motivation for immigration restriction is actually white nationalism. Mm -hmm. And very few people are open white nationalists in politics, but I I, I know there are some, you know, quasi white nationalists who are motivated by that, but then they'll talk about jobs or they'll talk about whatever. Mm -hmm. And I figure there must be the extremes are influencing people on both sides. And I think you're probably are influencing. And do you, but do you, uh, do you think that like watching the, uh, the political debate that there is sort of, you could see a hint of this because I think 10, 15 years ago, I think the way, you know, the way we talk about undocumented migrants, they were basically talked about like criminals, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, two, decades ago and that uh, on the left really doesn't fly even on the right it, it, you know it's it's not as harsh it's like you have to portray as many of them as possible as criminals or smugglers yeah. because if they're <laughs> criminals for another reason <laughs> yeah nobody nobody's angry at just the normal people anymore yeah. um and so do you think maybe maybe you actually have had an influence in that way yeah so the idea that more radical views on immigration are are covertly affecting what actually happens i think that's plausible what doesn't seem very plausible to me is that I personally am the uh, am, am the marginal factor. So I'd say you know, like I'm one voice out of a bunch of people that are defending much um, like you know, much higher levels of immigration. Um, so and again, you know, just just looking at what other people say, I like you know, it seems to me like most of the time when I talk to people who are immigration activists, they barely ever thought about open borders or anything like it, and their focus is really almost entirely on people who are already here. Right, who I would say, like you know, that you know, they're, they're, you know, that's the problem that is you know so minor compared compared to all the people that haven't gotten here in the first place. So I mean, I, I I do definitely love the idea of people secretly waving my book around and saying uh, this is our whole agenda here. I just have trouble believing that it's happening happening very often. Right. I mean, I mean, honestly, I would. I mean, my guess is actually that I'm more influential among 
among, among right wingers. Uh, so like, like you know, the, you know, the pro-immigration Republican, which is you know, not an oxymoron. Right? And actually, if you look at what happened under Trump, I would say it is the so-called business Republicans who did prevent there from being any major change in immigration law. Mm. Right? And so these are the people that are very closely uh, allied to businesses in their districts. And a lot of those businesses employ a lot of illegal immigrants. And they, at minimum, they just want to like, let's not do anything about this. Let's just not hassle my, you know, my allies. Right. So I think, I think that they are more likely to actually been influenced by what I'm doing than liberal Democrats who, you know, like, you know, so I'm always happy to go and have people who disagree with me, disagree with me and other things read me, but there is this sociology of people tend to read things by people that, uh, that, that, that are read by people who, are, who read things that are like things that, that are read by other people and so on. So I think that my social distance from the right is probably considerably smaller than from the left, even if I'm saying something much more radical that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that still like the, you know, like the, 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 like the, the, the buffers between me and Republicans, I would think are probably just milder. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, I could, I could be wrong about that. I mean, like, you know, like so often it's just confusing as to what's going on in the real world. And especially about oneself when it's very confused, it's like the number, you know, like, like there's so much selection, uh, selection bias among the people that, you know, that talk to you about yourself. And even they don't generally just tell you exactly what the, well, they don't level with you very often. So, you know, like whenever someone says, you know, like, you know what your problem is, Brian, I'm always intrigued. Like, Oh, please tell me, like, okay. no one tells me what my problem is. I'd really like to know just to get like any feedback at all on the nature of my problem or problems. So hit me with it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, you're, I mean, I think you're right that you're you're known as a free market guy who violates some taboos. So I think that, yeah, I think your social distance to the right is closer. Although on the left, I mean, I've seen an uptick in this kind of rhetoric and I haven't, I don't know of, and maybe this is just my own bubble. I don't know of many people just making the full uh, open borders case on the left, but somehow the mm-hmm. arguments have gotten there. So there was a famous interview with uh, somebody at Vox and Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. um, years ago. Oh yeah, ago. yeah. And then Sanders- yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so it was some of the Vox people there, I actually know them personally. So then if you were to say I've had some influence there, I would say I can definitely believe that because you know, a few of them have been in my house. So, yeah, uh, you know, that make that, that makes sense. And then, and then, but then the next times, I think it was the next time Sanders ran, he became not, not an open borders guy, but yeah. I, I, he got a, he got in line basically from where the, uh-huh. and maybe this is probably the woke yeah. more than Brian Kaplan, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> more open immigration, yeah. but, but yeah, there was yeah. a move at least uh, in that direction. Yeah. It's interesting proving the uh, proving the influence of any one person is always hard, but you do see these policy discussions shift. So somebody yeah, yeah. arguments must be having an effect somewhere. Tracing it, yeah. Is, is, yeah. Is, I mean, I say like you know, my social distance to effective altruism—that's much closer. So there, I know a lot of people involved in that very very well. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I, I can believe you know. So I can believe that I've got a lot of influence there. But then, as to how much influence effective altruism has, it's uh, you know, it's it's you know, it, it's noticeable in the world, but. And, you know, it's, it's a small share of philanthropy, which is, of course, a small share of GDP. So, you know, it's you know, what they're doing is great, but it's not. You know, I don't see much sign that it, like, you know, that it leads to fundamental social. There's any led to any fundamental social change yet, and you know, like hard to you know, little hard to believe it will ever. But uh, you know, maybe prove me prove me wrong, effective altruists. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, I'll be the first. To, I'll be the first to say I'm so glad I was wrong. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, this was this was fun, Brian. Uh, are you working on anything now? What's your what's your next? Yeah, so I mean, I've got two books. So actually, the thing that I'm working on right right now is I'm doing another graphic novel on housing deregulation. 
Oh, fun. So it's called uh, Build Baby Build, the Science and Ethics of Housing. And it's going to be similar to Open Borders in that I'm going to take a lot of high quality research that hardly anyone cares about or knows about and put it together in a package that convinces people that it's actually really important and would make an enormous difference in our society. Uh, So actually, I I have a chapter in in, in the book called The Panacea Policy, where I say, like, if we could deregulate housing, this wouldn't just go and lead to a big improvement in the housing situation. It would actually make a major dent in a long list of other problems people are complaining about. So, uh, you know, it comes down to, you know, housing is about 20% of the average American's budget. And a very reasonable back of the envelope estimate is that full deregulation of housing would cut the price by 50%. So you're talking about cutting the cost of living by 10%, raising the standard of living by 11%, right? You know, one over 0.9. And then there's also research saying that on top of this, we get another big bonus, which is that currently people don't move to high to areas with high total factor productivity because the cost of living is too high and this deregulation would make a big difference there. So we can get to squeeze out another big burst of productivity out of that. So, you know, I say it's very reasonable to think that this deregulation could raise U.S. GDP by 25%. And then uh, I go over all of the other problems that, that addresses. So inequality, so much of inequality turns out is just driven by housing. Right? So, uh, you know, like the rising, the rising capital share that, uh, the, that uh, Piketty is famous for finding, uh, there's a very well-known paper that shows it all comes down to rising housing costs. And if housing cost had stayed where it was, then there would have been no increase in capital share during, uh, since World War II, right? Uh, and then, of course, for general inequality, obviously the poor are more or spend a larger share of their income on housing and are more likely to be renters. So, two reasons why the poor would get a, an especially large share of the gains from housing deregulation uh, makes a big difference for mobility. So, because I mean, like in the past, it was totally normal for the poor in the United States to move to rich areas of the country to to improve their standard of living. And there's this great paper by Ganong and Shoag showing that uh, nowadays, uh, while high-skilled people can still make money by moving to rich areas of the country, low-skilled areas will actually lose money if they move to high-skilled, uh, to high-paid areas of the country because the housing costs will get more than 100% of the wage gain. So we got that. I talk about how uh, reducing housing costs would make a big difference for fertility because it is not fun to try to raise five kids in a one-room, one-bedroom apartment. Right. And uh, so, and of course, in terms of also getting family, family formation started at an earlier age, we make a difference there too. Let's see. And there's a bunch of, anyway, a bunch of other things that we get out of housing deregulation. So, um, uh, and again, as, as far as a graphic novel, a lot of what I want to do is to show people what they're missing, mm-hmm. like actually visually show them the, the fantastic uh, visionary cities that we could have if we, we would just go and become more flexible about this. Right. So, uh, and again, you know, it's like, you know, my view here is, well, you know, a normal view among economists is that this is all problem caused by homeowners protecting the value of their investment. And I actually say that the distributional effects are, of the regulation are much less clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, first of all, if you, even if you are a homeowner, you might like to have a bigger home than you've got. Mm-hmm. And in that case, if the price of homes were to fall, the net effect on your welfare is actually ambiguous, mm-hmm. right? So if you have your starter home now and it's like, wow, my starter home's all I'm going to have, and then housing piles by 50%. On the one hand, there's a capital loss. On the other hand, you can now afford a much nicer house. So it's not that clear that they would they lose out from that. And then for things like, do you want your kids to be able to live in the same area as you? Well, in that case, you're either going to be paying a down payment for them or you want deregulation so that the price can be affordable for your kids. So again, I think it's much more about what I call myopic paranoia, 
of people who are just so focused on any possible downside of construction that, and like the smallest thing, like it's messing up my view by 1%. Mm. All right. So it is, but if we do this, then housing can be cost 50% less. So we'll just like get some perspective. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway, so that's one thing I'm doing. And then I'm also working on a, a traditional academic press book called Poverty Who to Blame. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and this is one where a third of it is just going over immigration in a lot more detail. And then a third of it is talking about how about uh, poverty in the third world and how much how it's basically almost entirely a needless policy disaster. So like, you know, if kind of the third world had just followed reasonable orthodox economic policies since the end of World War II, there'd be almost no poor countries left on earth. And so it's that. And then finally, I also talk about irresponsible behavior, which uh, is almost on whatever I give a talk in the book, 95% of the questions are about that part. Right. And, um, you know, like I say, look, I, I, I have this as one, it's one of three big parts. I definitely want to talk about it because I think it's so neglected. It doesn't mean that, it, but, you know, but somehow the very fact that I bring it up makes people mis- mishear me as saying it's all, all poverty is caused by irresponsible behavior, which I totally don't think. But I will stick my neck in and say it's an important cause. It's an important cause. So, you know, one nice illustration of this is research on the so-called success sequence it says that in the United States, if you just finish high school, work full time and get married before you have kids, those, that very simple formula almost guarantees that you will, that you will not be below the poverty line. So, and that's useful information, right? Whatever else it is, it's something that you'd like people to know, say, Hey, like, it's not hopeless actually. Yeah. That, you know, like just feel, and, and, and again, this is not saying win a Nobel prize and it'll never be poor. Where it's like, well, thanks a lot. No, it's just saying three things that are doable by almost anyone of, of, of very modest intelligence and yeah. is doable. Yeah. Right. So just you know, mentioning that. And but then, and then you know, like, like the book is also of, it's the most philosophical book. Sorry. Of modest intelligence is quite the caveat, isn't it? Yes, yes. Huge part. Yeah, but you know, but, you know, but like, like, you know, like, like you don't have to be bright to do any of these things. Right. Okay. You know, like standards in American high schools are low. You don't have to be av- of average intelligence. Well, I mean, you well, if you're person, well, if you're, well, I mean, but how many people have IQs below 90? I mean, that's a huge portion of the population. Yeah, I mean, so like even, like even 90, I don't think it's actually hard to finish American high school. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. standards are so low and they want to pass people through. You just really have to just try. Would, would, the, would the implications be a sort of a, cause I don't think people of IQ of 90, I mean, no offense to them that are going to be reading Brian Kaplan's book and then getting their ideas from there. Yeah. You think that the, uh, uh, is, is sort of a more, um, a kind of, um, paternalism is, is the kind of policy implication here, at least culturally, if not through government. Well, you know, so, I mean, like, you know, like, like with a lot of my stuff, I hope that, uh, that say teachers read it and then teachers could go and present it to their students. So it doesn't require, it doesn't need to be read by the actual person that, most needs to hear the message. So, you know, like, you know, so like if, you know, so again, like IQ of 90, I think is fine for finishing high school. I think actually like, you know, like, you know decent, you know, like decent work ethic plus an IQ of 80, I think you can finish high school with high probability today yeah. just because, you know, like, like guidance counselors will steer you into easy classes and then you still get the diploma effect. And then again, like, you know, working full-time, I mean, like this is something that, you know, like, you know, traditionally, uh, like full-time work was absolutely the norm for prime age males of all education levels. It's only mm. in recent decades, the idea that you can't expect a, a high school male high school dropout to have a job. It's like, well, why the hell not? Yeah. Right. So, you know, like workforce participation in 1945 for prime age males, I think would have been like 96%. You can fact check that for me right now if you want, but it was really high in those days. Mm. And again, it's not because they, you know, like, like, you know, like, you know, they, you know, they weren't, you know, it wasn't that they were smarter. And when, you know, the like, says they're probably dumber, 
right? Uh, you know, but like and again, it's, the world got more so fun. like the, like physical capabilities. The jobs were physically harder back then. It's just you know, so like people were were acting more responsibly. I would say is the most obvious story. And again, so, you know, and then you know, finally for you know, get married before you have kids. You know, like this is not rocket science. This is not saying celibacy. Yeah. Right, saying like like you know you know you like get used contraception until you got married until you're married, which is the same thing that almost everybody's parents, teachers, <laughs> been telling them their whole lives. So just like listen to them, you'll throw them a bone. <laughs> now, your parents are giving you some decent advice in this case, so follow it. Yeah, I think people people would say I don't know if this argument is true, but they would say, well, the world was simpler, there was more manual labor compared to whatever people do today. You know, they need. Uh, uh, yeah, but know, manual labor is hard. <laughs> I agree, but the, but the, for for someone with an IQ of seventy five, maybe manual labor is not so hard relative to I don't know whatever being a receptionist or whatever you'd expect people to do. Yeah, today. well, I mean, probably someone with you know, with, you know, they might be working as like like an orderly at a nursing home, something like that, where. So again, like there's still tons of very low skilled jobs. I mean, you know, I remember like, like a pretty standard result on this uh, wage polarization is that actually, while there was a big decline in wages for like, moderate decline for, for wages for low skilled workers, what's happened in the last 20 years has been that very low skilled workers have actually seen rises in their income. And it's the middle skilled work, workers that seem to be doing the worst now. Mm-hmm. So basically the labor market seems like they have now seen low skilled workers are undervalued. And, you know, like there's actually, you know, there's plenty of employment for very low skilled workers. Again, it's not like, I'm not going to say that it's fun, but on the other hand, I, like it's not the really hard kind of work that, that, that uh, such workers would have done in 1945. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So. I love, yeah. I love your combination of, uh, you know, bleeding hearts for the, uh, the, the poor masses of the world that it's saying I'm hard headed this about. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's a unusual combination, but you know, you, you know, you seem to hold these views that uh, a lot of people seem unable to hold at the same time. But I think, I think. Are yeah. Not yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like a lot of it is just out of sight, out of mind when, you know, if you don't see someone every day, then you don't care about them. And, you know, I mean, like you'd hope that academics would be different, but unfortunately most of them are not. <laughs> yeah. What's the, uh, do you have an estimated time of arrival on those two books? Oh, so the graphic novel, I'm supposed to have the, the storyboards all done by Thanksgiving and then my artist uh, should have it uh, all drawn by about a year after that. And then figure maybe another six months after that uh, for it to be out. So that one's sooner. The poverty book, uh, I mean, the truth is, you know, like, like on my academic books, I work slowly because I want to get it right. And I just feel uncomfortable writing when I haven't read enough, mm-hmm. uh, which does slow me down. And many people said, just cut some corners and no one will ever know the difference. Like, oh, I'll know the difference. It just bothers me. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I did spend six years writing The Case Against Education. So the poverty book, I've been working on that more off and on for about two years. So, I mean, I say like optimistically, it'll be done in three years, probably more like five years, honestly. Uh, so... Uh, you know, I think I, you know, I think it'll be really good when it's done. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll look forward to the short run. We'll look forward to the uh, to the housing book. And uh, yeah, this was really fun. That thanks for joining us. Right, yeah, yeah, my, my my pleasure.